Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and yes, welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, and I am your host, Scott McMahon. And this episode is sponsored by the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available as a paperback, as a Kindle book, as well as an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free if you go to survivetheimplosion.com and sign up with Audible for 30 days free. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Before I get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to a few people who have left five-star ratings and review over on iTunes for the Film Trooper podcast. I want to thank Kyle and Stomp Tokyo for doing such a thing. Thank you so much. And another thing I wanted to mention, I got some feedback uh, from a friend of mine who's been following a Film Trooper podcast for a while, and he said that, um, you know, just a little tidbit, little critique for me, which is to, uh, you know, loosen up. So I was like, okay, loosen up. So my response to my friend is, F*** you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's a friend of mine. He'll totally get that. So there you go. There's, there's me loosening up a little bit. Um, so we're going to get right into it. This is part three of four episodes that are focusing on story and storytelling, but trying to do it in a little different way. So if you recall in episode number 102, which was two episodes ago, ago, I interviewed Patrick Moreau of Still Motion as we talked about his Muse storytelling program that he and Still Motion had created. And they offer a membership platform to help other filmmakers tell better stories through their Muse program. What's unique about the Muse approach, it really helps the filmmaker who has to shoot wedding videos, documentaries, and someone who's doing commercial work with high-end clients. Since a lot of these jobs can't take advantage of the traditional narrative script writing process that we're taught over and over how to do, Stillmotion has had to use research from psychologists and other leading educators to get to the heart of why story matters and how to apply it when you're in these sort of different filmmaking situations. Again, you can go back to episode number 102 to listen to that interview. Then just last week, I released part two of the series with New York Times best-selling author Ian Desher, who wrote the William Shakespeare Star Wars books. Yeah, again, that's right the William Shakespeare Star Wars books. There's uh, six of them that he wrote, and there might be a seventh one if they commission him to do The uh, Force Awakens. Although Ian isn't necessarily writing film scripts per se, his journey of pitching his idea to a publisher, getting the approval to write the books, and then becoming a New York Times bestselling author sounds like a dream come true, right? But I was very interested in getting the perspective of, is it all that it really appears? You know, because becoming a New York Times bestselling author is like winning an award at Sundance for any filmmaker, right? You think you'd be all set. But again, it's not all that it appears. So check that out in the last episode, which is number 103. But today I have part three of the storytelling series with filmmaker and writer Brooks Elms. Now, Brooks actually reached out to me to let me know that I screwed up on a bit of reporting about Gold Circle. (laughs) So I was trying to relay a story that was initially reported where the producers of the indie hit My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which made like over $368 million worldwide off a small budget of $5 million. Well, apparently the producers, being Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson, were owed all this money. So they sued the three companies that provided the financing for the film 
uh, back in 2007. Now, one of those companies was Gold Circle Films. So Gold Circle has gone on to produce like Pitch Perfect, you know, those movies, as well as I think it was originally backed by a billionaire uh, from Gateway Computers. So anyhow, the Hanks filed a lawsuit in 2007, but they dropped the suit in 2012. And I didn't quite report that correctly. I kind of just left it out there saying, just because a movie made almost $400 million worldwide, you still may have to sue the company to get your money. (laughs) So Brooks wanted me to make sure that I was making it very clear that the lawsuit was dropped and that Gold Circle has definitely complied by paying the producers like well over $44 million profit and who knows what other back-end stuff went down. So the reason, you know, Brooks was emailing me and why this is so important is because Brooks himself had just sold a script to Gold Circle uh, a few years ago. And that's what we're going to find out in today's episode is what we can learn from his story about what it takes to write a script and get it sold. And it looks like the movie's going into production very soon here. Uh, So sit back and enjoy my interview with filmmaker and writer Brooks Elms on the Film Trooper podcast. I would love to actually hear sort of like the, the quick journey, your little hero's journey from, you know, making 50 short films when you were before 18, going to NYU, what that experience was like, and um, eventually, you know, working to become a, uh, not only a filmmaker, but a screenwriter that got a project, you know, sold and what that experience is like and getting representation. Because a lot of people I know probably listening is like, you know, that's what they're dreaming. Like, if if I can get representation, you know, what is it or what the steps I need to get, you know, to make that happen? Yeah. Um Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, I was, as a kid, I was you know, involved in plays and stuff. I think I actually wrote a play in like third or fourth grade. And I even had the sense to kind of, because I knew, because uh, the, 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 the teacher who was our music teacher who, who put on the productions, he, um, I, knew, I knew to kind of cater to him, so I named the main character after him. So I'm thinking that he maybe would be more likely to actually get behind us so we could uh, produce this play, which I'm sure was absolutely terrible. Um, but it was, you know, fun for kids. And so I did that, and there was, you know, messing around with, uh, you know, uh, my neighbors. We would, you know, a play here and there, just kind of goofing around. And then in eighth grade, I took this Super 8 animation class, which was... It was like crack to me. Not that I've actually tried crack. <laughs> I, I imagine how crack would be. I mean, you know, it was a 42-minute period, and literally it felt like three minutes. It was, uh, it was so amazingly uh, uh, delightful for me. And um, we made, I don't know, three or four Super 8 films, and um, we had this character, and we kind of had him as a series of different... Uh, uh, you know, at one, at, one, at one point we were studying Dracula, and we had him dressed up like a vampire. And then another time he was a surfer, and and then and actually then there was a fantasy one where he was a he was a, he was a warrior or some sort. Anyway, um, so we did I did that, and so it was always like in, insanely satisfying and exciting for me. And then when I was in when I was 15 years old, my buddies came up to me and said, "Hey, we're making a karate film. Do you, you want <laughs> you want to do it?" And I said, "Hell yeah, let's go!" So I. I started in that, and, and the way me and those guys worked was very collaborative. It wasn't, um, there was no, like, director and his vision. It was just, it was a group of guys who were really into it, making movies. So we made that one. It was called Duel of the Bloody Warriors. And, um, and when we showed it to friends, 
that that's when the the exhibition bug really hit me because my friend was rolling around on, on the floor dying laughing and i was like wow as much fun as i had making it you know seeing that guy respond is is just as satisfying in a different way so i was we were totally hooked so then we made so i did a lot of experiments when i say 50 that's kind of a a kind of a generic number but um i was always doing experiments so that counts some of those experiments but in terms of like pretty serious films, that group of us probably made like seven or eight narratives. Uh, the crowning achievement was uh, this one that was an hour long. It was called The Unstoppables. It was a it was a parody of The Untouchables. <laughs> it was, uh, and you know, it was it was an hour long. We had a hundred people that came to our uh, our high school auditorium to see it. The mayor was there. We shot in like we would shoot all over this this small town, and we we're in like you know the law you know and. Uh, in the courts and everywhere, we just were. Oh, and the other thing is that at a time there was no internet, but they did have uh, uh, local, you know, like cable access. Yeah. And um, and for whatever reason, they allowed us to show our movies on, on TV, so you could flip around and actually see our movies on TV. And sometimes people would, uh, you know, stop us on the street and say, "Oh, yeah, you're those crazy kids doing those shows." So it was it was awesome. And because my town had a lot of, uh, I, I grew up in in, uh, in East Hampton which is one of the Hamptons that people have heard of. And because there's a lot of money out there, the, the high school was really well-funded. So mm. we, had a, we had our own TV station. So, um, so we did this weekly news show, which was an absolute blast. We probably did 20, 30 episodes of that. And uh, I probably did that for you know, two or three different years. And then my senior year, there was a class that was like, you know, uh, you know I forgot what they called it, but basically it was time for me to make movies in my friend's class. <laughs> Uh, and we kind of knew more about the teacher about, you know, because they just got, what he was a coach. He was like, all right, let's throw him in there. So he got the job, and we basically, uh, I think we made, the, we did the, the news show out of that class, but we were also making our own stuff. So it was just, you know, and then I went to NYU, and, uh, and I would, you know, make movies at NYU, which was great, and then I would go home in the summer break and then make more movies. So it was just, it was what I did for fun. And, uh, and then the, night, the, the, the big change at NYU was, A, um, I was around people who were film literate because mm. I had almost no film literacy before that. It was all whatever was the popular, you know, blockbuster movie that came out. And I would see it two or three, four or five times because there was nothing else to do in the small town. And, um, but I, you know, anything that was, you know, that came out before like 80, well, I guess I saw Sims when I was a kid, but basically I didn't know any of the 70s movies or anything like that. So, so it, 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 I went to NYU in the early 90s, and that's when I really started getting introduced to the, you know, the early Scorsese stuff and um, you know, all the 70s movies, which are spectacular. And I love that. And then and the other thing is that it just socially, you know, when other people were talking about films, they were like, oh, this film, and they could name the di- name the director, and they would name five of his films. And I was like, what? Uh, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. I made a ton, but I didn't have any of that. So that was great. So that really kind of elevated my game to kind of say, okay, you know, and I knew that, you know, we were, the feedback we were getting from, you know, people that were more serious about it were like, look, you, you know, your, your ambition is great, but you're making parodies and people, you know, they're not, people don't hold that in, in very high regard in general, you know, unless you're really, really funny, which we weren't. <laughs> we were kind of funny, <laughs> but not that funny. Um, and so then I gravitated towards a more sort of personal style and, and, um, and telling more personal stories. And then right out of N- uh, NYU, when I was 22, I made a feature that was 
based on my experiences playing soccer at NYU, because I was also into sports, and I was actually captain of the NYU soccer team. So I made a, uh, a movie that was about uh, this soccer team that was um, kind of better at partying after the games than they were on the field. They were, it wasn't like the Bad News Bears. It was more kind of nuanced than that. But it was, uh, I thought, for what it was, I thought it was kind of a, an interesting film. And, and the funny thing is, is that, I mean, but it's really, yeah, I mean, I was 22, so it's like a student feature. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it was pretty ambitious for that. I mean, there was, we shot 30 days in New York, in, in, in Manhattan, in, in New Jersey, in the Bronx, in uh, Queens. Uh, and uh, so it was like 30 locations in 30 days. Everybody was like in their young, tw- you know, early 20s. And, um, and so it was, it was sort of a big scale student film and uh, and there's a scene from that movie that that has over a million views on on YouTube and 300 400 people watch it every single day. I mean it's a sex scene which is probably why but uh you know it's not just a you know it's not just craziness it's 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 a it's a guy it, the the main character tells a story about how he got together with this girl and then some of it's true and some of it's not. So um so it's it's kind of, but it shows early glimpses of my style. I mean, it's it's there's a terrible transfer of it and whatever, but <laughs> amazingly, you know, again, more people watch watch that that one clip every day than probably saw the whole feature. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> well, what's the name of the film again? It's called Snapshots from a 500 Season. Okay. Yeah. So 500 is in sports terms, you win half, you lose half. So it was kind of a, you know, and then the guy was. You know, the movie's about the guy kind of, you know, it's like a coming-of-age story in a sense, him coming to terms with himself. And, but it has the feel of, of how college felt to me. Um, so I, I'm proud of it for what it was. Um, and, uh, and it did, you know, there's a guy, John Pearson, who was really active in the scene at the time. He, uh, he was a producer's rep, and he helped discover uh, Kevin Smith and Richard Linklater. And, oh, okay. And, and Spike Lee. He had this uh, marketing workshop that was really cool. He invited that to my film to that and um so it was you know it was it was it was in the space but i what i did actually what I, again go, going back to the exhibition part so after we finished it and i couldn't couldn't get uh, i didn't get into like sundance i didn't get into the top festivals um but i knew that there was some value in in this film so i i did a college tour and i did a, a what i called the new york city's guerrilla cinema i showed it for a month in an off off broadway space my film and then a, a, my buddy's film because uh, the lead act, there was a lead actor who was in both films. And so we showed, we showed my movie on, like, Odd Nights and his movie on Even Nights. <laughs> it was great. It was, so, you know, so, again, the, the exhibition part really is equally as fun for me as the making part. So, um, so uh, that was that. And then I made, and that, so that brought me to my, like, mid-20s. And then I made, I was working on, on an independent film uh, after that. It was sort of like, it was, a, it was a found footage film. At that point, I had no more money because I had some money that I could spend yeah, on. Yeah. And then I didn't have any money, so I did a found footage disaster film. This was before Blair Witch, before uh, Cloverfield. Um, it, and, the, and the idea was good, but I really didn't know anything about story structure because uh, I just had up and made film, so I, my stuff was pretty good as a director, um, but it wasn't as sort of a storyteller holding attention in a longer period. It was, I didn't know anything about the structure, and I was kind of resistant about learning. And ultimately, the film was kind of fun. To, we, so we got some actors, and we had the idea, and we're like, all right, let's shoot it, and we'll figure it out as we go. And it was pretty terrible. There were some things that were okay, but in general, I, I really needed to know about the story structure, and, and I didn't at that point. So, hmm. um, 
Then I took a couple of years off from the business and uh, and then realized that I really missed the business. And then and that's when I uh, and I came across these while I was taking time off, I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I was reading these um, psychology books because I just was uh, it, I was I was fascinated by psychology and I was fascinated by um, the school that I came across where the kids could kind of do whatever they wanted. They um, there was no tests, there's no grades, there's no everything was completely initiated by the students themselves. It was like they created their own existence, and and the school was basically a mini community. And they could vote on on <clears throat> the rules of the community, on which teachers get hired and fired, on how how the rules were enforced. I mean, it was really it was it was bizarre to me coming from a traditional school background, but it was mm-hmm. fascinating, and it felt it resonated with me because that's where I was in my life. I was taking time off. I had my bills paid for a little bit, so I could kind of do whatever I wanted, and it was exciting and overwhelming to have that much freedom. And so uh, the school was like, this is really interesting. So then, And then I missed being in the film business, so I wrote a fictional movie about a traditional school teacher who comes across these crazy schools, and it really changes his mind about, about authority uh, in, his, in his own sort of personal life. So that was a movie called Schooled, <clears throat> and I came back, and I came out to L.A., and I wrote that very leisurely, and... Uh, and showed it, and then edited it very leisurely, and then showed showed it around, and it did okay. You know, played all over the world. People people who were into sort of radical edu- education really liked it, and um, so it had its fans and its champions, and it was it was fun. But it certainly wasn't the thing that the industry was clamoring, uh, you know, for. <laughs> and um, and then at that point, the recession hit, so any sort of oh, yeah. investments that I had kind of got gutted, and I started a family. So I was like, oh my gosh, now <laughs> I can't make obscure films that are fun for me. I gotta make, I gotta make broader stuff, and then I gotta also solve that question that happened, you know, back in the... I mean, the structure of, of Schooled was okay. It was, it was kind of basic hero's journey stuff. He goes off into the journey, he learns, and he comes back, right? But it wasn't more nuanced than that. So I needed to know what they were doing in Hollywood that was different. And that's when I focused on just screenwriting. And I came across Blake Snyder's approach. He's mm-hmm. the Save the Cat guy. And, uh, and I went to his seminar while he was still alive, and he was just really fascinating. And, and that approach for me completely blew my mind because I already knew how to make movies. I've been done my, doing it all my whole life, but I didn't know how to hold attention like, you know, 10 minutes in, 30 minutes in, 50 minutes in. What were those turning points? Why were they important? Why did so many, you know, because part of me was going, re- resisting it and going, well, yeah, but all those terrible movies that I don't like have those turning points and it's not making them better, which I think is a good point. But, uh, uh, you know, anything that's working really well tends to have these grooves. It's almost like um, it's really about holding attention. And when you have, when you, you tell somebody something, blah, 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 and then all of a sudden you turn the story, and then you turn the story, it, it accelerates interest and deepens it. And so um, for me, Blake Snyder's way of communicating that was just, it cracked my mind open, and it was, it was amazing. And then from that point on, I, you know, my... It not only was I, I could en- now intellectually understand how I was writing and the structure of it, but he's got a, a process, or at least I took from what he was doing as a process. So I was working like a machine. So all that sort of energy I had about making films in general as a kid, I now was turning into my work as a screenwriter. So I was pumping out two scripts a year, bang, bang, bang. And then 
I ran into this, uh, had a meeting with my buddy from NYU who uh, produced a bunch of different films, and uh, one of them was Cabin Fever and, and a bunch of them since then. And and I was trying to see if he was interested in one of these scripts that I'd written, and he said, well, you know, that's not really my sort of thing, but why don't you write me like a genre movie? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not all that interested in genre <laughs> movies. Um you know, and and, uh, and I had a producer, another producer who made schooled with me. He was at that meeting, and we kind of walked away from the meeting. And he's like, "Dude, what are you doing? Like this guy, this guy's got a lot of connections. He'll hook you up. Write a genre movie for him." And I was like, "Ah, oh, you know, resisting." I was like, "All right, well, let me figure out if I can." So then, so then the idea was, okay, can I thread the needle? Can I make something that that takes these structure ideas that I was then newly fascinated with, and and was was playing to the genre beats that, you know, that, that are required in broader storytelling, and yet still was grounded and personal and interesting enough for me to care about it, because if I really didn't care about it, I can't, I can't write it. And then, uh, so the idea came for this, uh, this, uh, this alien invasion movie, and uh, the, I, the original seed of the idea was, actually, I was stuck in traffic on the 405, and I was like, <laughs> like it would be a yeah. really interesting situation if, you know, it was almost like it was like that Fellini film. There's that traffic in the Fellini film, and they're all stuck. And it was kind of like, well, what if there was a modern twist on that, and they're stuck in traffic, and these aliens came down? That would be kind of interesting. And then I w- talked about it with m- one of my writing partners, and we came up with this concept of of a group of commuters stuck on the L train in Chicago in a blizzard, and only the blizzard turns out to be a cover for an alien invasion. And the uh, the type of aliens these are were unlike anything we'd ever seen. My, my, my one part of it was really good in the, in the sci-fi space with coming up with very gruesome and interesting stuff. And so and it was fun. And then the characters are really grounded. And, uh, and uh, so we wrote it with the idea to make it ourselves um, at whatever, a million, two million, something like that. And then my buddy from NYU, this guy Evan Ostrowski, he said, you know what, this is really, this is really good. I think I might be able to get it set up on a bigger on a bigger scale and then we said well great and he walked it into his his contacts at uta they loved it and uh you know and then ultimately uh it got sold i mean so that's <clears throat> and then that movie uh is is should be in production any any week now actually um they uh so so probably you know we're doing this right now in january of 2016 um i'm told you know within the next month or two it should go into production because it was sold, so it was sold. If I move back in 2014, right? Um, well, yeah, I, I, yeah. So if you if you want to go into the, uh, the 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 gory details of actually selling the script, because which is good, because in my mind I was like, hey, I sold the script, you know, you know, limos, money, new assignments, blah blah. <laughs> and uh, the reality has been, it's just been super crazy, amazingly slow. Um, it was, <laughs> Which is frustrating on two levels. One, because as you can probably tell, my tempo is is up. I'm, I like to I like to go. I like to make stuff. I like to bang it out. You know, um, you know, creatively, that's that's my rhythm. Um, and then the other part is is financial. I got a family to support. So it's like, look, if I do something and you and it's good enough for you to, to get involved, then let's pay me. You know, let's get that part done. So, but what ended up happening was, so we'll back it up. It's like I guess two and a half years at this point, or three. So. Uh, Evan walks us into UTA. Um, we, we like those agents. Those guys are great. Um, they're, all right, let's go. Let's send this out. So it goes out to the town, and everybody passes. But we get a meeting. We get one meeting. And if you could have one meeting in Hollywood, what would it be? 
And and for me, it might be, you know, uh, Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' company. And that's what we got. So it was awesome. So we uh, went to his company, which is a really interesting space, and uh, met with two of his executives. They loved the script, and they're like, it's great, blah, blah, blah. It's not quite right for us because it's too similar to Cloverfield, blah, blah, blah. But um, keep us in mind, you know, sort of a media. And then we also pitched him something else, and they, they kind of liked that. And so, you know, it was a good contact, but that was about it. So, uh, oh, Ridley Scott's company supposedly liked it too, but we, we didn't meet with them, but we heard good things uh, that they mm-hmm. liked. So, and that was it. So we're like, okay, well, I guess we'll go back to making it ourselves. And then Evan ran into uh, a guy he knows from Bender Spink, and they were looking for this exact sort of concept. And they, I don't think they were able to crack script on, on, the, uh, on the sort of similar concept that they were going for, but he loved what we did. So he got on board. So Bender Spink was now on board along with Evan, and then we attached uh, a director, this guy Clark Baker, who had made a short film. I mean, our film was in, in some ways, you know, aliens attacking a train, a commuter train. He made a short film that was an alien attacking a plane, <laughs> and 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 it was it was so well received. Paramount picked that up and put him uh, put it into development. So Clark was newly on the studio list for directors. Uh, he really smart guy, uh, uh, great great dude to work with, and had some excellent ideas. He came in. Uh, we polished the script up a little bit so it was you know more aligned with his vision. And then we went back, and then we made a ripomatic, um, and then we went back out to the town. With that, but it was basically the same concept, same script. You know, it's a funny the way Hollywood works. Um, but so we go back out to the thing, and again, everybody passes except one company, and they. Uh, this is Gold Circle, and they're they were known back in the day for my big fat Greek wedding. Right. They've done. They do like two or three movies a year. They're known more recently for Pitch Perfect and the sequel, and um, they've done. I think they did Haunting in Connecticut. They do. Um, they're pretty active and very hands-on, and they loved the first half, um, which was mostly on this community train and, and these people getting attacked by these really wicked aliens. Um, and again, uh, well, well, no, our whole movie was mostly on the train. Cause again, because we were thinking of making it ourselves, so yeah. keeping the cost yeah. down. And he said, "No, no, no. We want it bigger. I want, I want this to be a lot bigger." So we were like, you know, my agents were like, "Great, bigger means more money." So, <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, fine." So you know, I, and I was concerned that it might be, um, you know, you know, that it might kind of lose some of its integrity. But, um, but to the credit of of everybody that came on, uh, you know, Bender Spink and Clark and and Gold Circle, the, all the notes were really, really good. Um, it was it, it was really that same thing. It was a matter of okay, how do you take something and make it broadly appealing but also true? And it's mm-hmm. really hard to do. And they were great in really you know being steadfast about saying no. I think you can make it either more broad or more personal, you know, and, and keep going. So it was great. And so I think on paper it's it's wonderful. So uh, I'm really proud of it. I think it can be a really special film. I'm hoping. I'm hope. Oh, and then finally, so anyway, so. Back it up. So basically, yeah, basically make it bigger. You know, have the ending be a little bit different. And then we pitched a few different ways to do the ending. They said, "Great, okay, let's do this." And that was two years ago or something like that. And then, uh, so, but, the, but the, we had a kind of a quote a deal, right? And then, uh, you know, there was like an option that happened later. And then, um, but it was, but then, but then we we wrote a treatment to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page and there's probably we'd write the treatment and then they get back to us you know a month or two later and give us notes and we bust out a treatment in a couple weeks and they get back to us in a couple months um i mean gold circle is an awesome company but they're also they're they're great because they tend to make everything they get involved in mm-hmm. but they're also very hands-on so it go it goes slower um so uh you know 
I probably took eight months or nine months just to, you know, and I was only three or four drafts of the treatment. And then that was done. And then the, um, and then we started on the script itself. And again, whatever, three, four more drafts of the script. Um, and, uh, you know, and then finally they said, great. And then at that point, that was about uh, a year ago that they said, signed off on the script. This is great. This is what we wanted. And then at that point, they basically been, they did storyboards. They've been um, budgeting for special effects and, um, you know, and, and things just take time. You know, this person's got to get back that, that person and blah, blah, blah. And right. So, anyway, we're told. And then in that time, our, our deal, you know, we get paid the sort of the significant money once it goes into production. So until that time, we got a little bit of money for the option to give them the option to make it into a film. But when they actually purchase a screenplay, that's when, that's when the real money's released. So, um, so all that's really important for everybody to, to know if they're interested in, in the screenwriting game, the spec market, because it's, um, I think it's fairly typical. I think that, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, I believe Clark Baker's short film that was bought, whatever, two years ago, three years ago, um, if not more, uh, that still hasn't gone into production. You know, it just, the wheels turn slowly. And partly it's, it's not, you know, there's frustration. You're like, oh man, what are they doing? Blah, blah, blah. But partly it's, it's the nature of it. It's like you want, you're, you know, people are spending a lot of money on this. You want to get it right. You have one chance to get it right for the most part. You want to make sure it's creatively all set. And you want to make sure the team involved is, is, you know, and you're talking about a very large team. So it's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts. It has to be done right. And, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, big-scale construction projects, too. These things have delays. So it's, uh, it's the nature of the beast, which is understandable, but it's also difficult at the same time if you're trying to <laughs> feed your family. So luckily I've been yeah. able to get writing, assi- writing assignments um, in the interim, uh, you know, just on the heat of, you know, because what happens is you have the movies that come out and the credits and then the, that reaction. Then you have the industry has its own sort of, Radar, um, yeah, awareness. like, yeah. So, they, they, you know, people know that we've, you know, this, people have read the script all over town. People know that we're this guy. They know that we're, we're connected to that. So that heat level gets us meetings and gets us, uh, you know, uh, into rooms to be able to pitch on assignments that we wouldn't had it not got to that point. What have you noticed about um, sort of the pitching process? Um, were you prepared prior to going to these meetings um, through friends, or have you been... Uh, learning on the way in terms of like how does a how does a room work in terms of the pitching process? That's a it's a great question and it actually reminds me of of a time back at NYU when I was pitching my third year film not so not the one before my senior thesis and uh, I got there you know I got up in front of the uh, in front of my you know NYU classmates and you know the classic joke about NYU uh, uh, film students is uh, how many. How many, how many NYU film students does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> uh, well, one, but then the other 29 will tell you how they would have screwed it in differently. So <laughs> Anyway, so, yeah, there was a lot of that, and, and partly it's just being young and being you know, easily threatened and competitive and all that stuff. But that being said, I actually liked uh, a lot you know, my, my classmates. And, um, and, but there was a time when I was pitching to this group of people and felt that kind of competitive whatever, but I also felt like, you know what, this is it, this is my element. I'm, and it was really just a, a way of, it's just telling the story. You know, if I'm telling you the story of, of my career right now, or I'm telling the story of, you know, what happened at the post office, it's that. It's really as simple as that, and it's just, uh, you know, but it's, not only is it 
just um, it's a story that I care about, so I'm happy to share. So, it, you know, on a basic level, like how do you pitch, it really should be that. It's, it's you know, if I care enough about it to be in that room in the first place, you just it just comes from that that space. So that's, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, um, you know, well, it's interesting because the... Um I was at uh, the pitch conference um, session at the American Film Market uh, host, uh, put on uh, by Stephanie Palmer from Good in a Room. And she had uh, Tobin Armbrust and Cassie Nell was there. And it's interesting. They have this thing where you s- people just get up and you know, all, uh, kudos to them for the courage in front of a crowd to pitch their story. Because you're getting to see in a live setting uh, what a pitch room would be like to two prominent producers. And it's really fascinating how, um, you know, god-awful some of the pitches were. <laughs> and meaning that, what ha- yes, the nerves and stuff like that. But w- what you see from an outsider's perspective, you're like, you know, people are coming in. There's, there's certain people that were, um, they would lead you down a, the, the, the path of the story. And then they would switch it. Like, all of a sudden, there's like this, this magical element. And that totally would throw off, like, the producers. Like, whoa, 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 what? Like, you know, I was going down, the, I thought the story was this, and now it's this. And so that was that um, one of the great um, comments from uh, Stephanie Palmer is that it's helpful to even state the genre before you start. Because, again, like, uh, it, you know, by at least letting the producers know, like, this is a sci fi thriller, sci fi comedy, or it's a comedy, or whatever it might be, they're like, okay, so when you tell the story, they're in that mindset a little bit better. Uh, yeah. it, it helps because at the same time, there was a lot of people that came in like almost overprepared. Like they they weren't talking about the story. They were talking about the production. Like here's the poster. We have this much reach or, you know, this is our marketing plan. Like all this kind of stuff. And it's they they were very quickly to squash it to say, you know, we are at the story stage. You know, there's other people that when the team gets built – the marketing team and all that kind of stuff, they're going to have their input in it. And it raises red flags when somebody, a producing team comes in too prepared and have too much stuff because it doesn't allow sort of the, the freedom or leverage for the, the team that, that the producer puts together to have, have them do their expertise or their involvement. And so the people that actually won that have the, the greatest impact was somebody just came in who had conviction and belief in the story they wanted to share and just told the story. And that's, that was the, those were the most effective pitches. So it wasn't like there's another guy had come in that was talking about all the awards he had won, all, you know, whatever it might be. So you could tell like the, the insecurity part of it. And uh, I thought it was just fascinating. Like you were mentioned, like I have to believe in the story. I have to be, you know, connected to it. It has to just be authentic. And I really, I guess that's what uh, a lot of these producers uh, in those rooms, they just want to hear, like, is it a good story? Does it have a hook? Is there something I could bite my, you know, jump in there? I could I could kind of see it. It's very clear. It's visual. And uh, I believe in the person telling me the story. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it, was, so it was really, really fascinating. My, so my, my, my thinking about this is, um, is, yes, it's related to pitching, but it really goes back to a different skill set, which is really primal. And it's... Um, there's, there's two pieces to it. One is uh, project selection. What should I write next? What should I make next as a film? And in a sense, if I'm going to a, a pitching situation in that in that case where they know nothing, which project should I should I pitch in that context? And then what parts of those stories are? Well, that's the first part. So which one to pick? And that's a huge uh, huge decision to make as, as a creator. And it's a re- it's 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 it's, it's all kind of uh, there's a whole sort of group of thinking. There's there's 
a lot of, it's a choice, it's a thought process in itself, mm-hmm. project what. So that's important, and that needs to be dialed in, and there's a whole kind of ways to approach it. And, and, and then once you have the project selected, you think it's the right one for me to write next as a spec, or make as an independent film, or pitch in a, in a pitch fest, then the next step is, uh, what's the log line? What's the concept? And that's, again, something I got from Blake Snyder's yeah. Save the Cat approach that was amazing because I always was so resistant. I've got this film. It's, it's 90 minutes. How can I boil it down to this one line? It sounds so <laughs> fake and blah, blah, blah. You know, and then I go, yeah, I'll look at all the blacklist scripts and I'll look at those log lines and those aren't good concepts. Blah, blah, blah. You know, all this you know, artistic resistance, right? Which is, which is fine. And yet as I've learned to really embrace and even love the logline, it's such a great tool. It's so amazingly helpful in writing a script, um, uh, you know, uh, making a movie, pitching the movie, or even selling it. it it's, and, and all we do all day long is sell our own movie. So uh, the fact that I can tell you that, you know, the way I pitched, you know, uh, uh, Snowfall, the, the alien invasion movie, mm-hmm. was, you know, a group of commuters, stuck on, uh, on, the, on the L train in Chicago during a storm, during a, a blizzard, only the blizzard's a cover for an alien invasion. So it's concise, it's clear, um, and, and that's not an accident. I mean, that was, you know, back, back when, when I started, that's the first thing I do. I bang out a log line, and now I'm good at it, so I, you know, I can usually get it in the ballpark within, you know, 10 minutes. But when, when I was first starting to do that, it was really, really hard. Um, but Blake, Blake's ideas about how to break it down and to, and to bring in some sort of irony or twist in it is really, mm-hmm. really helpful. And, when, and, and the thing to do when you pitch is give them that. Give them the concept. Give them the sense of what the poster is. And then if there's interest then you reveal more, and then you unpack more, and then you go from there. But it's, but it's that conversation that you're having with the room, whatever the room is, and you want those cues, because they might not even like that genre. And then you go, okay, you don't like sci-fi? I've got this other one. And then you pitch that one, or whatever. So, but but in, in, if you're not able to very concisely, even, first of all, think of your movie in a, in a concept, in a log line, it makes it it makes it, uh, from my, my experience as a screenwriter, very, very difficult to write a cohesive screenplay. Now, there's lots of people that do it, and, and it's fine, and it's because they have a, an innate sense of cohesiveness. Um, but uh, mine, I didn't have that, you know, and, uh, and I think most people probably don't. And it's a learnable skill. And, um, and then what happens is as I go out and I actually, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm writing my new spec, and uh, spec is a... Is a is a, is, a, is a script that's written on speculation to be sold to mm-hmm. somebody money for. Um, and as I'm doing that, I, uh, I start with that log line, I start with that concept, and then I flesh it out a little bit to maybe, you know, a beginning, middle, and end. And then I flesh it out to a few pages, and then I flesh it out further. But it, it enables me to kind of look at the look at the, the feedback that I'm getting and looking, how is it hitting people? How is it, you know, and then I can, I can, I can test it against the wind, you know, right, right from the beginning and flesh it out that way. As opposed to when I first started, right, you know, it was like I had an idea and I'd write it out and it's just, it's, it's so much, my, my process is so much more efficient and focused. Um, and, uh, and I'm hitting and it's so more, and it's, and it's just much more aligned with what Hollywood is looking for in terms of, the execution of a story, um, if that if that makes sense. But it all yeah. comes down to that 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 log line and that and that 
kernel of a concept. And one of the things I really liked about the, the work I've seen from you and, and the things that you've been doing is you've really taken that idea of licensing um, and, 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 a, and the theme of a story, and you've brought it into, uh, you know, uh, premium services for for movies, I think, uh, for, for independent filmmakers, which I think is really interesting, and I think is relates to how well a, uh, a storyteller knows what that kernel of the concept of their idea is, because theme is very much involved in that seed of the idea. Yeah, yeah there's a, um, a great um, quote from uh, Leo Burnett, who is like um, uh, David Ogilvy's like hero. He's like an ad guy from like the early 1900s, <laughs> or you know, and um, in, in teaching his ad agency, like his number one rule is like there is an inherent drama in every product, and our number one job is to dig for it and capitalize on it. So I thought that was really fascinating because you know from like a, an ad agency's perspective, they have to create story around a product, and so it's fun watching Mad Men because you could see them at you know at certain episodes try to dig into what what the heart of the story was for this particular product, and we have filmmakers, we have this film. And there is a theme, or there should be a theme. And like, is that theme something that could be uh, capitalized on in terms of uh, amplified or exploited more? That could be the seed for the licensing, this be seed for the um, the added value market uh, to help beyond just selling your fi- film online for a given price of like you know ninety nine cents, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but but it's I, I I only have like maybe like ten more minutes with you, but I really would love to. Um, get into like what are the things that as you have you seen like you were you not say you were able to crack the code you were like you know you and your writing partner you got signed by uta i mean obviously that emotionally that must have been really just like exciting like wow this is actually happening you know and then um and then the whole process of getting it sold and knowing that you know it's a long process but it's the the film should be in production very soon um and you're working on a new film because uh, you're like, like you said, your 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 rhythm is like, I got, I got go, go, go. Um, this one's Montauk Highway, and I could tell a little bit little about that. But before I do that, I was curious on the writing part of it, um, of all your stuff that you've you've evolved with. Um, what are the fun like things that you shouldn't do? You know, <laughs> it's like it's always fun like to hear people go, well, you know, that you should do this, but here's like the things that you really shouldn't do. Um, and maybe kind of throwing you a curveball right right at the spur of the moment. No, that's fine. Uh, uh, things I suggest people should not do when they're uh, writing or independent filmmaking or, or in what particular area? Um, I think the list of the writing uh, and like, you know, just I think for a lot of independent filmmakers, like, you know, they're, they're writing something because they can write it. And a lot of them have the means to just take up a camera or a small crew, a small like, you know, funding that they have and they just make it as opposed to maybe spending more time on the story. Uh, like maybe how does an independent, the uber independent filmmaker, like check themselves to make sure that the story is as as great as it can be? You know, like maybe is, is Yeah, I love that question because it's really, really, really hard. It's, um, <laughs> it, it, and it, it goes, it, so, uh, yeah, so, so, okay, I'm an independent filmmaker. I've written a script. Is it any good, right? Um, I get feedback, but here's the thing, you know, films are subjective. You know, uh, Avatar, the most worldwide, the biggest movie of all time, there are people who hate it. There are people <laughs> who think it's terrible. You know, people, you know, just, they wouldn't see it. They would, they have no interest in it, Right. So let's say I wrote, uh, 
Avatar, and I happened to, and one of these guys who happens to hate Avatar before he knows it is one of my friends, and I, I give him the script, and he's like, "This is terrible. Don't make it." You know what I mean? So that can happen, and then you, and, and the same thing happens with the most critically acclaimed movie of all time, might be like Godfather or Citizen Kane or something like that. Let's say I write that script, hypothetically, and I send that to my friend, and my friend happens to be the guy who hates that sort of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a problem. On the other hand, the other thing is completely a problem. Let's say if I say, you know what, screw everybody, I like this script. You know, I don't want, I know, I, you, know, I, I, you know, if I like it, I'm going to make it, go ahead, boom. It's like a journal entry in a sense, you know. The problem with that is it could be terrible, and it could be terrible in a way that had I heard the right kind of feedback in the right way, I would have said, oh, you know what? Yeah, I actually wasn't intending that. I meant something different, and now I can change it, and I like it even better. Mm-hmm. So you're losing the opportunity to make it even better for yourself if you go out too quickly, and you're losing, uh, you might lose your whole nerve to even make it if you give it the feedback and get the wrong kind of feedback and don't know how to process the feedback. So um, it's really difficult, and that, and, that, and that doesn't really go away. I mean, you can get, as, at least in my, in my experience, I definitely have two things. One is I, I know what kind of feedback I can get from some people. I love feedback from laymen. I love feedback from professionals. I love feedback from producers. And, and I expect different things from those people, and I don't ask them for other than what they have. You know, some people give in-depth notes. Some people say thumbs up or down, you know, mm-hmm. and it's fine. I, and I, I get the feedback that I need. And I also, on a personal level, have grown to love feedback because and, and not because I want everybody to agree with me. I do want people to agree with me, but, but it's not going to always happen. So, um, but what I do want is when I disagree, it has to feel right. You know? So when, when I give my script to somebody and they go, well, I don't like A, B, and C, and I feel how that feels that they don't like it, and if I go, you know what, I agree, and now I want to change it and make it better. Or I listen, and I go, oh, you know what? Yeah, that's a different movie, and that's not the one that I want to make. And then I say thank you for the feedback, and I ignore it, and I move on. So, um, so what not to, to to answer the question? What not to do is don't rush it out too, you know, too quickly, and and also don't um, don't get feedback from the wrong people, and and believe them, and let them knock you off your your vision and your path and what you love for it, you know. And and so I'll say one last thing to kind of bring this home is is, you know, you take your favorite movies of all time or even this year or whatever, and you talk to some of your closest friends, we're going to disagree about those movies. Mm-hmm. You know? For me, one of my favorite movies of all time is Boyhood, and, and, that was, and that was maybe one of the best-reviewed movies of all time. But my wife was bored. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it wasn't crazy about it, you know. And there's a lot of people who was kind of like, yeah, whatever. It was kind of was too subtle. It was too whatever. And you know what? I get that. That's 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 awesome. And so, uh, so it's being true to my vision, not just in isolation, but in the the strong winds of the business and the greater public. Uh, so when I hear the types of criticism, I get a sense of the type of trolls that will come at me, and I get a sense of, <laughs> of, of all the stuff that people aren't going to like about it, and I still love my movie, then it's, then, then it's the right thing to do. Right, right. Yeah, I was just curious if uh, cert- like you've seen like certain other writers um, having sort of systems in place to, to create that sort of checks and balance, uh, you know, with, with 
beneficial um, critique of the story. And, you know, we look at television and the writer's room, and there's I think there's some just amazing stuff being made in television, the golden age right now. There's so much, you know, amazing content coming out. And I don't know whether or not the writer's room allows that uh, ability, you know, so that it's... Um, did the checks and balance to try to bring the best forward or uh, in Pixar they are renowned for this concept of like the brain trust uh, group where the creatives get together and everybody you know ha- you know hammers at the story but they but the person who's responsible for the for the script uh, doesn't have to take any of the advice or input it's just there as like a, a session so that they can determine on their own what needs to be fixed um, I, I, apparently, I, I'm I'm trying to get somebody from Pixar to to come on so I can get the inside scoop of how they operate. But I was curious if, as independents, if we could apply that to our our own writing uh, process. Uh, so, like you said, we're not in that place where the independent is writing. It's like a few people said, "Yeah, it's great," and then they go, "Yep, yeah, making it." You know, <laughs> and then yeah. and then you're like, "Ah, oh, oh, could have been better." You know. <laughs> yeah, it's important. The thing is that what we want to know as independent filmmakers, when we're doing everything ourselves and we're going to basically put it out there and try to make money off it ourselves, we need to be at peace with how people are, you know, are, are not going what they're not going to like about it, and 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 if and if what they don't like about it is the same thing they don't like about my favorite films anyway, perfect. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so, uh, yeah, but that feedback process is very, very important. It can be from collaborators. It can be from. Um, you know, people that you work with, your DP or whoever. Uh, it could be uh, from a writers group. I've been in a writers group for. I founded one in LA in LA. I don't know, 15 years ago, and it's been huge. It's been huge for me and for everybody involved because it's a safe place to to be like, well, you know. And we we in that group, it, you know, really prides ourselves on on graceful honesty because if it's not honest, you're not really going to help somebody. And if it's not graceful, you could really knock them off track. You yeah. know? So that brutal honesty is like, this sucks, you should know that, I'm doing you a favor, is ridiculous because <laughs> it just it puts the, uh, it, it really puts the creative process, uh, it knocks it off track, you know. Um, but if you're, if you're saying, oh, this is the best and blah, 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 and that's not true, um, then that doesn't help them. So it, graceful honesty uh, with feedback um, when you're giving it is, is, is a great intention and seeking out people who can do that, you know, I mean, to me, it, there's almost a thrill I get when I can really hate somebody's film or script or whatever, and still give them inspiring feedback. Mm-hmm. To me, that's awesome as a feedbacker and as a creative, because, because what I'm doing is I'm separating. I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have a need as a fan or as a, you know, as a whatever to, they don't have to agree with me and they don't have to even take my ideas, you know. But if they're coming to me for feedback and I like them as a person, as a colleague, I really want them to be inspired, you know. And yeah. sometimes, and sometimes that, that means, you know what, this whole kind of premise is, is kind of messed up. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be a musical. It shouldn't be or whatever. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it being said sometimes i wouldn't say that so just because i'm into graceful honesty if look if their film is playing at you know at the festival and it's that night i don't give them any sort of feedback i just slap them on the back and say congratulations you know yeah they're, it's done if they, <laughs> yeah. If they're not in the position to, to to change anything do not share that because that's inappropriate so anyway there's a whole, yeah. a whole lots of thinking about uh 
about great feedback giving and getting because it can be masterful and it can be an absolute travesty and i'm sure most people have felt both (laughs) that's yeah i totally agree i think it's uh, from great advice now listen we have uh three more minutes so i want to just wrap it up i want you uh you actually sent me like a some you said offer like a story blog or like a screenwriting blog and you have some great notes so i'll offer that in the show notes uh, so yeah. everybody can get hold of those. But you're also in the throes because you have to get off this phone call uh, soon to have an investor call for your new film, Montauk Highway. If you can kind of tell us a little bit about that film and uh, before we sign off. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. So uh, as, as I mentioned before, I grew up in East Hampton, and uh, it's uh, the place that's known to most people as the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. So I always thought it was a perfect place to tell a class conflict love story um, and to show a different side of the Hamptons that people uh, are, are familiar with. So, um, so it's a, it's a it's a coming of it's an edgy coming of age story set in the Hamptons against the tensions between the locals and the summer crowd. And we've got an amazing cast, and I'm so darn excited to make this thing. Uh, you can people can follow it uh, at uh, Montauk Highway on Twitter, like Montauk underscore Highway. Just put Montauk Highway; it should, it should pop up, uh, or me on Twitter at Brooks Elms. Uh, and uh, that's the best way to kind of stay uh, stay uh, uh, stay up to date. I, I mean, I want to talk about the cast, but we haven't. Uh, but we we still there's still a few official things to close, and then we announce. <laughs> right. But I love them, and I love where this thing's going. It's going to be, yeah. It's you know, it's my hometown film. So, uh, and actually, I have pitch clips on this. If anybody's interested, they can uh, you know, until we make them public, you can uh, reach out to me, and then I can give you the password, um, uh, and you can check it out. And then, but they should be public fairly soon. Uh, but you know things have to close. So anyway, I'm excited about it, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a way for me to kind of because because growing up in East Hampton, we saw the mansions and, and the famous people and all that, and we and we had a sense of sort of insecurity. So in a sense, for me, it's a sort of validation of of my dignity that I felt was question that I questioned myself when I lived there. So it, it, again, it's that idea of super personal and super classic. I mean, we've seen a million class conflict love stories and, you know, these are, you know, from Romeo and Juliet and whatever, mm-hmm. but, but the idea, and everybody knows the Hamptons, but they don't know this side of it. So it's really, I think, a great way. And the other thing is, as, because I'm directing it myself, my earlier films were very, after I got to the NYU period, were very personal. And then when I was writing in Hollywood, I, I've been writing very broad. And so this is a great way to kind of take my personal sensibility as a director and, and, the, and, and the screenwriting uh, talents that, I, that, I, that I've developed since then, it all, it all, it's all coming together, and I think it's going to be a really special film, so I'm so excited about it. I'm excited for you, and I'm excited. To, we'll keep track of how Snowfall, um, as we see it in the trades, you know, as it, it gets made. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, and um, Thank you. just, you know, some, some great insight just in taking us through the journey, because I know a lot of filmmakers want, you know, you're, you're further down the timeline from a lot of people where they want to be, so it's, it's fantastic to hear where you're going. And I'm excited for your film, my friend. So Montauk Highway. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. So that concludes my interview with filmmaker and writer Brooks Elms. You can find out all the details over at filmtrooper.com forward slash 104 because this is episode number 104. So all the show notes, all the links to everything that he's working on and all the articles that we were discussing uh, we'll be there for you. Again, that's filmtrooper.com forward slash 104 to get a little bit more uh, detail than what you're hearing here in the podcast. 
If you like the podcast, think about leaving a ratings and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or on Google Play. I think it's almost uh, ready to be available on Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, think about leaving a ratings and review. It uh, definitely helps. I appreciate it. But don't go away empty-handed because, listen, if you are a filmmaker who's stuck trying to make their film right now, then I can offer you a free gift over at freegearguide.com. That's freegearguide.com. And you'll get an equipment list of everything that I use to make a feature film for $500 without a crew. Again, that's at freegearguide.com. That's it for now. Thank you so much for checking in to the Film Trooper Podcast, and I will see you next time. Bye. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.